Hello and welcome back to The Critic Narrated, where we bring you a selection of articles from our print issues, read aloud by their authors. In this episode, Robert Hutton reads the secret diary of Boris and Carrie Johnson's dog, Dylan, as he attends Glasgow COP26. Josephine Bartosz, author and campaigner for women's rights, narrates her feature, Turning Victims into Folk Devils, and Robert Thickness reads his November opera column, Hot Bouks Live. And so, in this week's Dylan the Dog Diary, Dylan heads to COP26. We are in somewhere called Glasgow, which Bozo says is hostile terrain. I think this means there are lots of puddles. He says we are here to save the planet and have a big success. It mainly involves meeting people. There was a man called Joe who let me sit in his lap while he slept. Tomorrow we're seeing a woman called Nicola who is scared of dogs. Bozo says I should put her at ease by humping her leg. Bozo's team are trying to write something called a tweet. It takes a very long time. There must be a joke about copping off, says Bozo, or calling the cops. Something like that. That's not really our message, says Allegra, who is Kaz's friend that we don't really see anymore. We're aiming for a sense of harmony with nature. That's why you're holding the dog in the picture. Speaking of the filthy mutt, what about a joke about noxious emissions? Says Bozo. No, Prime Minister. She shows him a piece of paper. How about this? No, I don't want to say I love Glasgow. Vile place. I hate it and they hate me. I can hear what they shout, you know. Yes, Prime Minister. She scribbles for a minute. Jack, one of the flunkies, looks over her shoulder. We can't say together, he says. Too political, because of the referendum. Same with United. They scribble some more and argue, while Bozzo stares out of the window at the grey sky. You'd think the Scots would be in favour of climate change, he mutters. It could only be an improvement. Allegra looks up. OK. We're agreed. It's, hello Glasgow, one exclamation mark. I'll pass it round for sign off and it should be out by this evening. A nice girl called Greta comes in. 18, eh? Says Bozzo. Best years of your life. Jetting down to Ibiza to dance all night. Off your head on pills, I expect. She looks at him, then pats me on the head. Can he do any tricks? She asks. Or does he just wander around trying to mate with things? Carrie's taught him to beg, says Allegra. Very good. And the dog? Now, Josephine Bartosz on turning victims into folk devils. Turning victims into folk devils. Joe Bartosz on the plight of trans widows, scorned for telling the unfashionable truth about their abusive autogynophile husbands. Jennifer Kimmel didn't want to think ever again about what had happened to her. She certainly had no plans to talk to a journalist. The abuse she suffered was severe. Jennifer was imprisoned for two years and sexually tortured by her ex-husband. After fleeing the relationship, all the mother of three wanted was to settle down in her adopted home of Ireland and to recover in peace. But when she turned to a domestic abuse group for support, Jennifer told that it was her who needed to change her behaviour. 
Now, Jennifer wants to speak out to help other women expose a dangerous community of men who hide behind a myth of victimhood. She says, When I've told my story before, it's been dismissed as being about a classic abusive man. And in some ways, that's true. But he wasn't just an abusive man. He was an autogynophile. That's to say, a man who gets sexually aroused at the thought of himself as a woman. Meaning literally love of oneself as a woman, autogynophilia, AGP, is a fetish that can manifest as everything from occasional wearing of women's underwear to seeking full cosmetic sex reassignment surgery. It is estimated around 3% of men in Western countries may experience autogynophilia, though the numbers seem to be rising. Julia Serrano, author of Whipping Girl, is one of many transgender activists who deny the existence of AGP, arguing that the condition has been concocted to reduce trans women to presumed sexual behaviours and motivations. Summarising the controversy over AGP, medical historian Alice Drager wrote in her 2015 book Galileo's Middle Finger that the ultimate eroticism of autogynophilia lies in the idea of really becoming a woman, not in being a natal male who desires to be a woman. This, she posits, is why AGP is the love that would really rather we didn't speak its name. But increasingly, women who have been in relationships with men who believe themselves women on the inside are making their voices heard. They have formed a community of trans widows who are beginning to challenge the popular media narrative of transgender people as hapless victims. Not all of the partners of trans widows are AGPs. Some are deeply closeted gay men who feel more comfortable being seen as women. Others are lesbians who want to become trans men. But whatever the motivation, the women they leave behind are a much maligned group. Those who refuse to become props in their partner's identities are shamed and their stories are rarely heard. Jennifer was 24 when she met the man she was to marry and have three children with. He was 12 years older than her and had a gift for telling stories. I was smitten. We spent almost every day together after we met. He had a lilting Irish accent, flowing long white hair and sparkling blue eyes. We both liked to think of ourselves as anti-establishment, as outsiders. We would go camping under the stars and we would talk about everything until the early hours. Before Jennifer realised, he had moved in. Slowly at first, the the relationship began to change. When he walked into the room with pigtails and a breezy wee dress, I was shocked. But he told me a story that really touched me. He talked about the tough childhood he had had and his depression. He told me that his cross-dressing habit started as a child when he ran away from home and found comfort wearing his auntie's underwear. I'd always prided myself on being open-minded and accepting, so I tried to be understanding and not to judge him. I was already deeply in love. Early on in his relationship with Jennifer, he went to therapy for depression and was told AGP was harmless escapism. He told Jennifer this and she began to believe acting out his fetish was therapeutic for him and that it was her duty to help him heal. Herself a victim of childhood sexual abuse, Jennifer opened up about her own experiences and feelings. When she told him that she thought she might be bisexual, he used it against her 
She explains that he soon began to demand that they had sex when he was in his woman clothes and persona. Jennifer didn't like it and told him so. But he began to mess with my mind. He would say, I thought you were bisexual. I'm a lesbian because I'm a woman on the inside, so why wouldn't you sleep with me as a woman? I'm a woman too, and you're hurting me. And I didn't want to be cruel to this person I was already in love with. He told me I was snotty or close-minded so often that I began to doubt myself. The smell of his silicon sex toys, mixed with the amyl nitrate fumes, made me gag. But if I showed my disgust, he would get angry and accuse me of being judgmental. He would tell me that because I was born into a female body, that did not mean I was a better woman than him. I told him that the sex he wanted frightened and hurt me. He didn't care. He said my complaining was manipulative and selfish and that I was trying to stifle his womanhood. It all happened very slowly and it was confusing. I thought I was the strong one and that I should help my husband and I still loved him and he could make me laugh until I was insensible. He would lay off when I expressed concern or when I said I would end the relationship but then he would start again and push it further. The next time he would show up, he would be wearing fishnets or whatever, things that I find offensively unattractive. He would pressure me into sex, but I wouldn't want to be intimate with anyone dressed like that. To the outside world, her husband was an ordinary guy, a contractor in the building trade who would go out for beers on a Friday night with the lads. But to Jennifer, he had become a controlling sexual sadist. She put some money aside and made a plan to leave, reasoning... I just didn't want to be with him as a man or as a woman. I didn't like the way he thought women should be. But when she told her ex-husband she was leaving, he claimed to be suicidal, telling Jennifer she was the only person with whom he could be his true, authentic woman self. Jennifer was racked with guilt. She began to hope that the relationship might change. And it did, after Jennifer realised she was pregnant. As soon as the baby began to show, he told me I was revolting to look at. He'd shudder if he caught a glimpse of my bare body. But at least I had a short break from him demanding sex. After I'd given birth to our first child, he would tell me how fat I was. He'd tell me I'd let myself go, and he would delight in taking my clothes from before I was pregnant to wear them. He would tell me, you'll never get into them again, so I might as well have them. Don't be jealous. I was so ground down by that point, I'd forgotten what a healthy relationship was. I had two more kids, and I became more involved with them and less with him. I made another plan to leave, but he immediately went back to the suicide threats. He told me that we had to think of the kids. He said, we could take them home to Ireland, they'd have a better life. It's so much safer. Please, give me a chance. I've only acted like this because I'm depressed. Things will be better in Ireland. Squeezing the doubts to the back of her mind, Jennifer agreed, and after ten years of living together in the United States, the couple moved to Ireland to start a new life. It was there the relationship took a darker turn. We lived outside town, in a house with no footpath. It wasn't safe to walk along the road with the kids to get help, and I didn't know whether to say I, I was a hostage, but I was stuck with him as I don't drive. I could have possibly flagged down someone down, but what would I have told them? Her husband had given up work, and Jennifer was caring for the children full-time. 
In the US, we didn't spend much time together as a couple. Now, piecing things together, I suspect he paid prostitutes to act out his fantasies. But when we got to Ireland, everything was focused on me. That's the only explanation I can think of. I just can't believe he planned for ten years to take me home and make me a prisoner. I could feel the atmosphere change. I had no recourse. We both knew I was trapped. He used to spend all day looking at porn, and at night he would want me to act it out. I learned to dread the evenings, carrying a knot of fear in my stomach. At home in the US I had my family, three sisters, two brothers, and scores of nephews and nieces to hang out with. But in Ireland I had no one. He would tell me I was in his territory now. He became obsessively jealous, and I wasn't allowed to meet anyone. The only time I was permitted to leave the house was when he'd occasionally take me to the pub. He would make me get dressed three times until I met with his approval. I think now he'd take me to the pub because he liked to watch other people look at me. He got off on that. He would then take me home and torment me. He wouldn't speak to me. He wouldn't take me into town to get groceries. He wouldn't even heat the house unless I agreed to recreate the pornographic fantasies he'd seen online. I had no money, no friends, no way of getting out, and three little kids to care for. I had no choice, but the demands became more and more frequent every night. I would dress the kids up in layers of clothes and put them in the same bed to protect them from the cold. Their room became my sanctuary. I would read them Harry Potter and lose myself in the stories. I would go to the bathroom and think he must have got bored and given up by now, but he was always up there. Waiting. As Jennifer's life became more restricted, her husband delighted in pushing boundaries. Jennifer found it increasingly difficult to shield the children from his sexual fantasies. He would say perverted, creepy things in his mewling woman victim voice. I was terrified that the kids would hear, but I wonder if that was part of it for him. He started wearing my dressing gown in the daytime with the kids around and underneath it were his woman clothes. The truth is, I can never be sure what the kids picked up. The pornography he watched got more and more disturbing. He always wanted me to watch it too, so I could see what I was supposed to do. He liked to see women unconscious, waking up and being raped. I didn't know how they were unconscious, but that was his favourite. Afterwards, I would have to pretend to rape him, and then he'd switch it around for the finale and do it to me. He'd ignore my protestations. He had a network of people like him, and they'd chat online and share pornography. One night he had some footage he wanted to show me. I looked at the screen and saw an unconscious woman being dragged along by one leg through deep snow. At one point her head bumped. A sick feeling came over me. I said to him, Is that woman dead? In response he said, I don't know, it doesn't matter. What happened to that woman still haunts me today. I can't stop worrying about her. I don't know if it's what he regularly looked at when I wasn't there. And I try not to think about that because I have three kids with that guy. And that's what women are to AGP men, like my ex-husband. They're disposable sex toys. Jennifer was approaching her 40th birthday when she was thrown a lifeline. He was friends with a couple and the woman said, we've got to take Jenny out for her birthday. He didn't want to look like a bad husband in front of his friends, so he reluctantly agreed. When I was out, an Irish woman of around my own age saw me. She could see how worn out and sad I was. 
She sat next to me and gave me her number. She said I should call her if I was lonely and wanted a cuppa. She came over a few times and he was raging. She said to me, Jenny, you shouldn't have to live like this. It isn't acceptable. Obviously, she had no idea about the sexual torture every night. She just saw how controlling he was. And after a while, I told her a bit and she put me in touch with a women's charity and they sent a therapist to my GP and they got me and the kids out. When Jennifer left, her husband once again immediately threatened suicide. When this didn't work, he and his brother embarked on a sustained campaign of harassment. He put it out around the town that I'd left him because I wanted to whore around. People didn't know me, and I didn't know what people thought, and he played on that. I felt anxious and afraid all of the time. He and his brother kept threatening to take the kids away. They said they were going to get me deported back to America. I couldn't sleep, I was terrified, and I kept getting flashbacks of the abuse. When I went to get psychiatric help, I was warned off. The clinician I spoke to advised me as there might be a custody dispute, and any record of mental illness could be used to say that I was an unfit mother. Eventually, he said that if I signed a no-fault divorce, which is something that is possible in America, and if I signed everything over to him, he'd leave me alone. He didn't even leave it 24 hours before he started hounding me again. I was a mess. When the divorce came through, he would come and take the kids to the shop occasionally, I think to show the town what a wronged man he was. But that was it. He didn't contribute to support the kids at all. I made sure they didn't go without, but we were living on welfare. Two years ago, Jennifer's ex-husband left Ireland to live in the Philippines. He's now living with his girlfriend, who was less than half his age, a woman he claims to have rescued from poverty. Jennifer doesn't know whether he now wears his woman costume full-time, and he has only occasional contact with their children. Before leaving Ireland, Jennifer's ex-husband told their then 15-year-old daughter that he had made the decision to move to a place untainted by feminism a country where women still know how to behave. When Jennifer escaped the relationship nearly a decade ago, she was supported by feminist charities who offered women-only services, allowing her the space to heal. But she has now lost faith in the organisations which once supported her. Today, men like my ex-husband would be welcomed with open arms by the leading women's groups in Ireland, provided that he turned up in his woman costume. In fact, he would probably be seen as especially vulnerable and in need of extra support. He'd love that. I've heard from other trans widows that not agreeing to call their partners by female names is now considered a form of domestic abuse. To compare that to what so many of their partners endure, it's obscene. In 2015, Jennifer went to her local women's group for support. Shy and nervous, she immediately found herself taken under another woman's wing. But as soon as the conversation flowed, Jennifer dared to suggest that trans women are male and that some have a sexual motive for identifying as female. She was told that she was a bigot, that she needed to educate herself and to be quiet. Having spent years building up the courage to speak out, she was devastated. She decided to never again open up about what had happened to her. I know women think they're being kind and inclusive, but these males are not victims. These men thrive on breaking boundaries, and what better way to do that than to be accepted into a group of women and listen to them talk about their trauma?
Why can't people see that their claims of victimhood are part of the fetish? Whether through ignorance or concerns about funding, a class of professional feminists who now run women's services choose to ignore the existence of AGP. In Ireland, a system of gender self-identification has been introduced which allows legal sex change without any diagnosis of gender dysphoria or safeguards. This is chilling to Jennifer. AGP arousal comes from control, from the power to dictate what a woman is, and today these men have won. It is now considered hateful and transphobic to even refer to women as adult human females. The harassment J.K. Rowling received when she deviated from the trans women are women line is what finally prompted Jennifer to speak out. Reading Harry Potter stories to her kids allowed her a moment of escape and on learning that the author was a victim of domestic abuse, Jennifer felt a sense of solidarity. But when she defended Rowling, Jennifer lost most of her friends and was even scolded by her own children. Since coming out about her experience at the hands of an AGP man, Jennifer has been contacted by scores of women through social media and word of mouth. She knows that there are many victims who feel unable to speak out about the abuse that they have suffered, taking on the shame that really rightfully ought to be carried by their tormentors. It's embarrassing and humiliating, and I think that's the other thing that guys like this do. They know that we're not going to want to tell people all the details, and I'm sure he counted on me being too ashamed to tell anyone about what he was doing to me. Stories of trans widows such as Jennifer have been buried. Their suffering is an unfashionable reminder of an inconvenient truth. Those who question the idea that people can change sex have become folk devils, legitimate targets of abuse and scorn, as Jennifer reflects bitterly. It feels like society is picking up from where my ex left off. And finally, Robert Thickness on Opera with Hot Valks Live. Hot Valks Live. Who said classical music is dead? Well, catch yourself on. Because Serge Tankian, lead singer of Armenian-American metalhead's System of a Down, is coming to park his love guns on your lawn. The guy who brought you genocidal humanoids, Azerbaijanis? I didn't check. Has used lockdown to produce a classical piano concerto, so he has. Serge, 54, with a rueful grin, recognised the outré nature of his achievement. I mean, who the fuck listened to four minutes of music at one piece today? Who the fuck indeed? No matter that Serge's little noodlings could have been produced by an averagely talented six-year-old, it's his ambition and expanded horizons we must applaud. And now that Serge has staggered over the fence, I'm sure that the English National Opera will be jetting him over for the 230 minutes, relax, it's in three bits, of Wagner's Valkyrie, opening later in November. Ino has lately been terrifically keen on what we might call the London shitterati, to the experimentalist degree of basing an entire marketing strategy on luring in such eminences as Holly Willoughby and hoping some of her blank-eyed Twitter retinue will be gulled into booking. Not sure how that one's going, frankly. 
I guess Wagner's reputation, if only among morons, as the godfather of metal, is just another of the crosses he must bear, along with his unfortunate historical fan club, the unsought progeny of Tolkien's Oxford infantilisms, the games for teen autists of sorcery and dragons, the mock mythic effluvia of Game of Thrones. But listen, that's not his fault, apart from Hitler, or... And it's a bit rough to have spent... 20 years on the ring of the Nibelung, Valkyrie being part two, but don't panic. If you haven't seen part one, it'll be fine. Surely the greatest one-man artwork in history. And a mere 150 years later, nearly everyone, I mean you, the culturally literate, not the Morlocks, has the merest vague, scornful inkling of it as some kind of fascist manifesto full of elves, dragons, and colossal blondes in big helmets farting about in the Rhine. Did Wagner simply choose an idiotic medium? The ring, obviously, has always been a bit niche, and our old-school music has signally failed to hold the attention of more than a sad, shabbily-dressed minority, with Wagner's acolytes a wild-haired subset of that. Whatever the reasons, laziness and fear, in truth, this 15-hour, four-evening survey of world history, from primordial soup to apocalyptic nuts, is actually pretty concise. At once, philosophical disquisition, political analysis, psychological metaphor, and yes, determined catalyst of national destiny, with Germany groping towards unity after centuries of religious strife and psychotic French aggression. He completed it in 1869, just before the traffic started going the other way. The choice of a Vajambaree bag of Nordic mythology as the vehicle for this radical critique of history, plus ecstatic vision of redemption, always risked being misinterpreted, of course. And those dragons and dwarves can look a bit pitiful in certain lights, but massively in its favour, in a world babyishly devoted to simple-minded certitudes, is its joy in how complicated stuff is, in stark contrast, too, to the remedial intellectual level of Wagner's Italian and French opera contemporaries. And while belly laughs are not frequent, there's terrific fun to be had in this massive soap opera-style family melodrama. En route, Wagner invents the all-knowing orchestra, music with a disturbing ability to be the thing it describes, a forest, a hellish mine, heaven, evil, ecstasy, embedded in a web of musical motifs that finally make every phrase bulge with meaning, a continuous music drama of stifling imaginative power to induce addictive trances, and not just in beastly little Tory MPs squirming about in their damp seats as the Valhalla theme fills them with dreams of supreme power. Nothing changes in opera. Its message, only love can save us percolates from the early 17th century, and the ring echoes Mozart's message in Figaro that compassion, our highest aspiration, is born from sexual love. The Valkyrie is the dramatic hinge where humans, used as ever by gods as tools to further their creepy designs, suddenly wake up into moral consciousness and teach their masters a lesson in ethics. This love tutorial is very simple. Head Valkyrie Brunhilde is telling Siegmund all about his glorious post-mortem future in Valhalla, as long as he agrees to throw his upcoming fight to the death. Can I bring my girlfriend, he asks. Unfortunately not, but there will be heaps of hot Valks there. Then thanks, he says, but I'll stay here with her and take my chances. Brunhilde returns to Voten with the alarming message that the helots have shown themselves nobler than the gods. And Wotan, realising it's all up with his gang, understands that the future requires his exit. 
His tortured journey to self-knowledge, the god becoming almost human himself, is the core of the story. So it's very odd, when you think about it, that you see so many politicians, financiers, clerics at the ring, when the whole thing is devoted to calling for their liquidation. I suppose all we can hope is that one day, given a sufficiently lucid production, they will all get the message and slaughter themselves right there in the stalls. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.